we're going to take a break from Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is long, it's 28 chapters, and we're going to take a break for the month of May. Okay, and we're going to get back into it June 2nd. Uh, we have Ken coming back from Brookside Church, and that's exciting. He's going to resume our series in Acts for us, in Acts chapter 8. So we're taking a one-month break in the month of May, the month of new life. These are the flowers that April has promised, right, to come. And I want to do a series for us in discipleship, and it's just called Discipleship 101. Don't you love that? It's the basics. Um, the reason behind that is because uh, as a church, it can be overwhelming as a pastor to, to kind of look at the scope of Christianity and to, to, to try to take it all in and to know what to talk about. What should I preach on? What, what books should we do? What topics should we cover? How should we do it? In the Christian faith, I'll just give you a, just a little tiny sample of what it is that I'm looking at. We have... Christian history in the Bible, we have the law, we have the covenants, we have the gospel narratives, we have pure doctrine, we have eschatology, we have the means of grace, we have church life, or also known as ecclesiology. There are so many different things to talk about as a preacher. And so, with wisdom, I think it takes a little bit of prayer and um, just kind of evaluating where we're at as a church to say, what are our needs? What are our spiritual needs? What kind of spiritual food do we need? When we binge on you know, waffles and chicken nuggets for a weekend, then the mother and father hopefully on Monday reassess, okay, our meals for this week need to address our deficiencies from the weekend. So we do that in real life, at least hopefully most of us do. And I think the same is true for the Christian church, that we need to assess where we're at. And so I do want to talk about this one question. Who and what are disciples of Jesus Christ? Who and what are disciples of Jesus Christ? The good news is that Scripture gives us every possible uh, amount of information that we need to answer this question. It gives us instruction, it gives us hope, it gives us encouragement, and it gives us correction so that we can become fully engaged uh, fully equipped, as the Bible says, ready to do all the things we're supposed to do, disciples of Christ. Um, the bad news is, the bad news is that we often do it our own way, despite that. We often define Christianity the way that it typically makes sense to us, and we often import a lot of our cultural habits into our faith. And that includes me. Okay, this is not a, that's not an indictment on you. That's the reality of every culture. Um, the church in every age tends to be permeated by the conventions and the habits of its surrounding culture. And as the church, we have our blinders taken off. We know the truth, right? We've been brought into the light. And that gives us the ability to assess where we are at and to say, hmm, I don't think that belongs in my Christianity. Or I think... I have been missing something that I need to bring into my faith. Now, in all of this, please understand that I am not creating laws for you to follow. In a message like this, and when it comes to evaluating some of our potential deficiencies, I'm not creating laws, I'm not condemning any of you if any of your habits or any of your ways of thinking gets brought into this message, because I want you to assume that you're not condemned, and that I love you, and that we're all walking this together, and that there's no reason for you to go away hopeless. There's every reason for you to cling on to the scriptures and say, I want to walk forward in that. So I just want to put that out as a um, caveat to my message. Uh, please understand that I am not condemning um, anybody, but rather hopefully just providing the path to walk, that we can walk it together. Here's the deal. In our culture, this is our cultural time, we, Canadians, are expert self-soothers. I mean, you teach your baby to self-soothe, right? You don't want them calling for you. You want them sticking either their thumb in their mouth or their soother. We are like that. We are self-soothers. When we face difficulty, when we face interruption, when we face challenge, we know what to reach for, to soothe. For some of us, it might be spending money. It might be uh, just 
uh, entertainment. For some of us, it might be foods. For some of us, it might be a certain social crowd that when we get too stressed out spiritually, we're going to go to those people because they don't remind us of the church. Um, for some of us, it might be escape. We're, we're so good at it. I know, I know the things that help me escape and, help, and, and soothe my, the anxieties that I face as a Christian. And often, when you live that kind of lifestyle where, where you turn immediately to self-soothing, often what is given to Christ and his church is whatever's left over. Time, money, effort, talents, all those things. It's whatever we have left. <clears throat> and so much of what the church in Canada faces today is a deficiency in who gets the first of our lives. We are the, we are the, the most wealthy generation in all of human history. Things that only royalty would enjoy 200 years ago are commonplace to us. We are the most wealthy generation in human history. And yet the church often is an institution struggling to pay for its commitments, struggling to raise up new leaders, struggling to evangelize the lost, struggling, struggling, struggling. I believe a lot of that has to do with how little we give to Christ and his work through the church. <clears throat> Again, myself included. We have this idea of being a disciple of Christ, and I'm going to get to our text in a minute. We have this idea, I'm just setting the stage for you. We have this idea, and I had this from about age 15 through, I would say, 26. I'm not talking very long ago. I had this idea, and I think this is common again in our culture, that a disciple is a person who gets more Bible knowledge, more and more Bible knowledge, and less and less sin in the heart and in the mind and in the activities. So basically, our idea of being a disciple is I'm going to get, I'm going to get more and more Bible knowledge. I'm going, to get re- I'm going to listen to lots of sermons. I'm going, to, I'm going to get really good at my Bible reading devotions. I'm going to listen to Christian radio. And on the other side, I'm going to repent of more and more sin. I'm going to swear less. I'm going to yell at my kids less. I'm going to serve my wife more. I'm going to make sure I don't cheat. I'm going to make sure I do everything on the up and up. I'm not going to take any jobs under the table. I'm going to live this squeaky clean moral life. Those things are all wonderful, by the way. All of those disciplines are great. They're useful. They're beautiful. It's the way God created us. Everything that I just mentioned. But we think that that encompasses all that it means to be a disciple. As long as I'm doing those two things, I am a disciple of Christ. Again, what's the question we're asking today? Who and what are disciples of Jesus Christ? Obviously, the sermon would be over now if those two things were the answer. So, you can guess that I'm going to add to that. <clears throat> the problem with this approach to discipleship, Bible knowledge, and less sin is that it has a super personal, individualistic approach to faith, right? Right? Those two things you can manage all on your own, especially in today's um, hyper-information age. YouTube, podcasts, I mean, I indulge in that stuff with the best of them. I got podcasts just listed and listed on my iPhone to fill my mind with great discussion, great preaching, great debate, great interaction. And I, like you, try to repent of my sin. I try to seek out impurity in my life and give it to Christ, and I try to Allow myself to be transformed by all of this. But again, all of this can be done from my office chair or my car on the way to coffee. I can do all of that completely by myself. So there's something missing there. <clears throat> here's, the, here's how the rubber meets the road, my friends. When it comes to gathering with the people, if that's your idea of a disciple... When it comes to gathering with the other disciples, that becomes a really secondary concern for you. In other words, if anything comes up, if the kids sleep in, or if um, you know you stayed up too late last night, or the Leafs went into triple overtime and won, oh wait, that doesn't happen. <laughs> then all of a sudden, the gathering aspect, the together aspect of discipleship, hits the chopping block. 
I lived that way for a long time. Again, much of what God has done in my life has been outside of my control. I have to show up every Sunday. I am paid to do it. Okay, so, so don't think I don't understand where you're at. Because I lived for so much of my Christian life where church was just a matter of convenience. The gathering together was like, if I feel like it, if I know so-and-so is not going to be there, if I know so-and-so is preaching, then I'll show up. And it was just like this buffet approach to the gathering aspect of discipleship. And my friends, I want to shatter that in us. It still resides in me. By God's grace, I am employed in the church and I love what I do. But I want to make disciples of each of us. We are called to disciple the nations and we must be first what a disciple is. So you're going to learn about this more in the fall, but we have, we have been working on our core values as a church. I have been working super hard on it to try to figure out what, what are the things that we prize most as a church. We have four of them. I'm just going to share two of them with you, and I'll talk about them much later. But our first two values, number one is biblical literacy. You may know that by listening to me. I'm obsessed with the Bible and its teaching and how to understand it. But our second, our second value as a church is Christian community. Not just because those are just a, it's a great phrase. Everyone wants to go to a church where community is a value, right? If your church doesn't have community as a value, well, you're at the wrong church. But what does that actually mean and why is it our value? You know why? Because the gathering, the actual assembly of the community of Christians is a prophetic witness to the world. <clears throat> Janelle was just talking about a friend who came over and brought her wine and prayed with her. If she shares that story with anybody who does not know Christ, they are immediately going to get a vision into what it means to be a Christian. Not by her necessarily cracking open the Bible and saying, you know, understand the uh, eschatological implications of just loving each other, just being together, just worshiping, praying, preaching. What we do here is a witness. If somebody came in off the street not having a clue who Jesus was, they would get a pretty strong sense by our gathering together. So I always want to ask, if you struggle with evangelism, many of us do, <clears throat> do you know what some of your most effective evangelism can be? Just committing to the togetherness of the body of Christ, the family. That commitment is evangelical. It's evangelistic because it speaks to your priorities. It speaks to your affiliation. It speaks to your people. Who are your people? These are my people, the redeemed of God. It doesn't mean we don't like those who are not in the church. But the togetherness of the body of Christ has a lot more to do with discipleship than I think many of us have come to understand to this point. And I, again, I include myself in that. And honestly, <clears throat> that is a mercy to hear. It may sound like, oh boy, he's going to go off on church attendance. No. Because so much of your discipleship involves other people. If your discipleship just involved how well you could execute the requirements of Christianity, it's hard, it's discouraging, it's lonely, it's performance-based. But when you walk your faith out with people... You're naturally sanctified. You are naturally brought to new places just by being with those people who are going through similar things and also carrying each other through it. That's the stage I'm setting. Let's look, let's look at Ephesians 3.14 through 4.6. I'm not preaching on 14 to 21, but it's a bit of the context. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says, For this reason, this is Paul speaking, <clears throat> I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power 
at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3 there provide a little bit of the context and the backdrop for where Paul is going with this subject. Now just so you know, if you want to read ahead, this series on discipleship is going to go through verse 16. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is, is our chunk over the next four weeks. And I've developed a little bit of a, uh, a definition of discipleship. I'm not going to read it this morning because I'd like you to kind of wrestle with where we're going and, and, and try it yourself first. But those are our 16 verses that are, out of which we're going to derive our definition of discipleship. So Paul begins here in verse 14 by saying, I am bowing to this Father, the Father in heaven, from whom every family on earth and heaven is named. So there's four things that a disciple does in your outline this morning. There's four things. Number one, a disciple understands the gospel. Number two, a disciple applies the gospel to relationships in the church. Number three, a, go- um, a disciple stays centered on theology. That's number four, sorry. Number three is a disciple desires and maintains unity in the church. And number four, a disciple stays centered on theology. So here's where we're going with discipleship this morning. Number one is a disciple understands the gospel. So verses 14 and 15 provide for us a little bit of the backdrop of what the gospel is. That there is a Father in heaven from whom every family on earth and in heaven derives its name. That means those who have died and those who are still living. In the Greek there, there's this amazing... um, there's this, there's this little parallel that the Greek words show that we don't have. The word father and family are of the same root. And I'm not going to try to pronounce them for you. But there's this parallel, though, between fatherness and familyness. There's this family structure that God is the father over every family. And this is in, important because it gives to us the origin of the gospel. The backdrop, the, the history, the past reality behind the gospel. It's been rightly said um, by people who are smarter than me that there are four things that cover every question that humanity will ever ask. Four categories. Do you want to hear them? Origin. Where did it all come from? Meaning. What is the meaning of what we see? Morality. How should we live in this, re- in, in this world? And destiny, where are we going? Those are the four questions, those are the four categories into which every question ever asked will fall. Where did it come from? What does it mean? How should we live? Where are we going? The gospel, likewise, to understand it, we need to begin with its origin, its backdrop, the history. So a disciple understands the gospel. What Paul is saying here is that all of humanity, all of creation, came from somewhere. It it traces its roots, it traces its family name back to somewhere. He doesn't say Adam in this point. He says God the Father. God the Father is the Father over every family. Everybody on earth owes their existence to a creator. A God who has in love created them. To know him. Creation is an an integral part of our gospel story. Because God created us and named us, he has rights over his people. He has fatherly authority and care and oversight over his people, over the world, over all of creation. Genesis 1-3 says that God created the heavens and the earth and he began by speaking it into existence. God said, let there be light. This is the creative initiative of God. God created. That's the beginning of all humanity. 
We're here because God made us and we are, we are tied to him in some way. The Bible also tells us that all humanity is made in the image of God. No matter what we do with our lives, no matter how bad we mess up, no matter how far we run from God, God has stamped his imprint on every single one of us. Men, women, children, special needs, everybody has the image of God. And so the gospel has to begin there. That God has created us and God has named us. We derive our name from him. It's also amazing that he uses the word family. He doesn't say every individual traces their roots back to God. He said every family does. In other words, God created humanity with one basic social institution. He didn't first create Westminster Parliament. He didn't first create a republic. He didn't first create a monarchy. He didn't first create a dictatorship. He didn't first create any of those forms of governance. The, the initial primary structure of his creation was the family. Adam was incomplete without Eve, without a wife, without a partner. In other words, the family is the basic structure, and then he gave them a blessing and said, be fruitful and multiply yourselves. So God created all of humanity to dwell in relationship, because family tells us what God's design for creation was. It's the family where you first find productivity, governance, education, and relationships. Do you know that? You're the first one to teach your children anything. And hopefully you're their greatest teacher throughout their lives. Productivity. You teach your, your kids to pick up their toys, to rake the leaves, to clear the table, to help you make dinner. Productivity first takes place in the family. Uh, governance. There's discipline and reward, right, for different behavior and for different expectations in the family. And relationship. A child is born into this world in a relationship to its mother. And hopefully soon after, its father. And then, if, if God wills, also to its siblings. Relationships are the, the first thing that a new baby receives. So God's creation was always intended to bring about relationship with other human beings. It, it cannot exist without this relationship. It's God's biological design. And so, my friends, this is the backdrop of the gospel. This is God's creation. This is God's intention for humanity. And I want to say that if we are disciples of Christ, we have to understand the whole intention of God. And... Here's the other thing, is that we are not going to believe, let alone convince other people of the gospel, if we do not understand its context, which is that all of humanity belongs to God, because he made it, and he made it with a certain purpose. And so when things fall outside of that purpose, we can call people back to God. Colossians 1.16 has this beautiful verse, because if all things were made from God, then all existence is for him. Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus Christ, All things were made through him, and all things are to him. In other words, everything in all of the created order is, is to him. It's for the purpose of Christ, who we know is the incarnate God. So that's, that's number one. A disciple understands the gospel. Understands its backdrop, understands its meaning. Now, sometimes we think, well, isn't the gospel, Jesus died for your sin, and if you repent, you can go to heaven? That's the atonement part of the gospel. But the gospel begins with the reality that God made us. The atonement of Christ returns us to God, it is not the starting point of the gospel. And so that's why we need to understand as disciples that our gospel message has to be more comprehensive than just Jesus died for your sin. Well, what is sin? It's a departure from the way God made you. Well, why does that matter? Because God created you for a purpose. He created you in a certain way. And so we need to fill in that, that context that God is the Father over everybody. And so number two, a disciple applies the gospel to relationships in the church. We're going to get into a little bit more about what that gospel is. 
But in chapter 4, Paul says, after covering this gospel, which he fills in a little bit when he says that they may have the strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so again, that's the, it's relational. That the gospel would fill you with a deeper sense of your relationship with God through Christ. And then he says, I urge you, I therefore, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, that you would walk in a manner that is worthy, that is worthy of the calling that you have been called to. And so because God created all things, he also calls all to return to him. The Bible says that God desires that all men may be saved and brought to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, because humanity has fallen, has broken away from this purpose, has rebelled against God, God has then issued a call. There is a call of salvation made available to everybody through Jesus Christ. It's the call of the gospel. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So if the calling of God is to say, return to me, I've provided the sacrifice for your sins, I've made an open door for you to come back to me through Christ, I have forgiven you, I have washed you clean, and I have given you the Holy Spirit to walk according to my commands and to live as a missionary in the world, then you should also walk. That word walk is a word of action. It's a word of engagement. It's a word of movement and reconciliation between thoughts and actions. So I love this because God, by his creative word, made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. All humanity was made by God's creative word. Likewise, he creates, by his redemptive word, a people for himself who love and worship him and are redeemed by him. This word call. I was doing this study over the last week of how God's word is used in scripture. And he created the heavens and the earth by his word. Christ also says in John 15, you are also clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Paul here um, describes the gospel from God as a call, as a vocal call, a proclamation to come. And so God now, out of the families of all the earth, he's creating another family. He is recreating humanity through the gospel. He is reforming a society, a city of God, through the redemption of the gospel. So in the same way that his creative word creates us into family, so his redemptive word saves us into a family. Saves us into a family. Did you hear that? We are not saved unto ourselves. We are saved into a body. We are saved into a family of the redeemed. And so our calling as Christians leads inevitably, it demands some kind of living. Paul says you need to walk in a way that corresponds to your call. Those can't be two different things. The way you walk and the, and the way you say you live, or you've been called, or you've been separated, or you've been recreated. If you want to describe your calling to people in God, it must match the way you live. It must match the decisions you make. You need to reconcile, you need to rectify how you're living with what you say you believe about God, and the world, and the church, and humanity, and the family of God. Friends, that's a word of action. That's a word of reordering priorities. It's an act of taking stock of your life. In the same way we, we spring clean our pantries and our bedrooms and we get rid of stuff that doesn't um, spark joy. Right? We get rid of things that do not correspond with where our lives are going. In the same way God has called us into the gospel, into a future, into a new reality... And we need to spring clean. We need to get rid of things that do not correspond with the call of the gospel. If your life and your belief and your faith do not match, then the, the Bible says, as a disciple, you need to make that one and the same. And that's a lifelong journey, my friends. That's not happening this afternoon. Okay, but it's a process and it's, it's a commitment that we make. 
In other words, our faith cannot be trapped in our brains. Does that make more sense? Our faith in Jesus Christ cannot be trapped up here. That we're just so smart about the scriptures, but it bears no relationship to how we live. And Paul says, Paul says, do you want some help in figuring out how to walk in a manner worthy? Here it is. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. There it is. That was easy. We didn't have to go digging hard for that one. How do you walk in a way that corresponds with what you believe? You do it by being patient, being gentle, and bearing with each other, each other, in love. This is a one another statement. The Bible, the New Testament especially, is loaded with one another statements. There's a lot of one another. Love one another. Bear with one another. Care for one another. Walk with one another. The Bible is loaded with one another statements. Meaning that the gospel assumes that Christians will live life together. Yeah, it's so funny because you kind of preach to the crowd when you're already together. Nobody here is going, oh, I need to be, you're here now. But this is a lifelong cyclical commitment as you grow in a, as a Christian, you will increase your one anotherness with the Church of Christ. Not to the exclusion of the lost. No, no, no. But in order that you might be equipped to actually engage the lost. That's a total sidebar, but just so you know, it's not to the exclusion of the lost. And so this mode of togetherness that says patience, gentleness, and bearing with each other, it also assumes difficulty. Which is why so many of us shy away from the one anotherness. We shy away from the togetherness. We like to sit on the outside at the family table. We like to even go eat outside on the front porch instead of at the family table. Why? Because it assumes difficulty. Even the company of the redeemed, even the family of God, will encounter sin, offense, disagreement, etc., etc., etc. Some of you are like, no, never. Not in the church. Offense? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes offense. Sometimes stepping on each other's toes. Sometimes saying something so rude and offensive, accidentally or subconsciously, or we still struggle because God has brought us together. Wouldn't here's, Okay, here's a way that Christianity would be way easier on us. If every Sunday morning, we got high-speed internet in almost every home, I could just... <coughs> I could just put on a, a shirt from the waist up that's nice, and I could be in my sweatpants, and I could say, okay, guys, everyone tune in, put your headsets on, I'm going to preach. And you all sat at your kitchen tables, and the only people you had to deal with is either your spouse or your kids that morning. You didn't have to come in and meet everybody else. You didn't have to share how you're struggling. You didn't have to actually shake somebody's hand. And I just said, open your Bibles, I'm going to teach through it. Or even easier for me... I could just go online, find a good sermon, and I could Facebook link it to you every Sunday morning. Here we go, right? Bible knowledge. We could just rack it up every single Sunday morning. You'd never have to even know who else went to Evergreen Chapel. We could be a virtual church. Do you know that, my friends, in some places in North America, that is actually taking off as a new model of church? It's so convenient. John Chris, if you ever watch him, he does an amazing video on this virtual church. And you get to customize the clothing of the uh, music leader. You get to customize the conviction level of the message. And it's a total mockery of this idea of how we shy away from the togetherness. Because there's so many things that could bug us about each other. Some of you are like, why is Tim's shirt so loud? Just solid print would be fine. Aren't there so many things that bother us about each other? Honestly, that we do, Right? Even the person you love and committed your whole life to and your spouse bothers you sometimes. We do. We're humans. We still bother each other. It doesn't negate what Christ is doing in our lives. So there's this one anotherness. There's this, in this mode, gentleness, patience, and bearing with each other is saying, when you get redeemed in this family, just keep that in mind. It's going to require a little bit of bending on your part. 
It's going to require a little bit of patience. It's going to require a little bit of not coming down over the head of somebody who bothered you, offended you, or missed something, or didn't think of you. We're going to do it all the time. Do you know how many times I've stood up from the pulpit and I've made announcements or preached something, and I've gotten down, and by God's grace, Shannon has just said to me, do you know how what you said would have made this person feel? And, I've, and I have literally had to call people and say, I, you must have wanted to kill me. I bother people all the time in how I preach and how I conduct my ministry. You all bear with me really well. I don't know why that is, but do you bear with one another in the ways you fail one another or you bother one another? He says, with patience, kindness, gentleness, bear with each other, each other. Why is that? Why is it so important? As I said, we are a prophetic community. How we live and what we do when we're together speaks to the world about who Christ is. What's the basic meaning of that? That that's how Christ related to us. That's how you got saved. You got saved because Christ was patient. You got saved because Christ bore with your sin and didn't judge and condemn you. You got saved because Christ endured you. And you know what? He still endures us. I don't think it's painful for him. The Bible does say that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It's how God relates to us every single day. So if we're not willing to do that one to another, we are denying the gospel of Christ. We are denying our purpose as a city on a hill, as a light to the darkness. Imagine your patience, you're not coming down, you're not cutting somebody out of your life because they, you just can't stand the way they deal with you, is a witness of the gospel. You want to talk evangelism? That's evangelism to the world. This is how Christ treated me. That's what sweetens every relationship. I don't deserve any better than that. I don't deserve any better than how that person treated me. That's how we bear with each other because we recognize how much Christ bore with us. And it's powerful. It just drops the pride and the rage level when we're offended. When we think of how Christ relates to us in that way all the time, it's proof to the world of what Jesus is like albeit imperfect, but he's among us and he is in your relationship efforts. That's how you walk in a manner worthy of the calling. If the calling was you were a sinner, you had fallen out of God's favor, and God in his patience sent a sacrifice redeeming you of your sin and forgiving you daily for your mess-ups, for your sins, for your pride, then how you walk in a manner worthy of that calling is to do that to other people. Many of us say, well, I could treat Christ that way. Of course you could. Christ is the best. But Christ gave us each other who are not the best. And we're still called to witness to the gospel through our relationships. So number two, a disciple applies the gospel in their relationships in the church. Number three, a disciple desires and maintains unity in the church. Now this might sound a little bit redundant, but it is a unique point. So bearing with each other, verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So that's the motivation for the bearing with one another. The bearing with one another is what preserves unity, but there's an eagerness there. And there's a recognition of why you're doing it. You're doing it in order to maintain something, to preserve something, to display and, and um, care for something. What is that? Again, the redemption family, redemption in and of itself, creates and assumes a life lived in relational community, which is a precious result of salvation. And it ought to be prized by Christians. So when you're saved, isn't it so nice that you're not, you're not just handed a card with the hours during the week that the temple is open and you can just show up when it's convenient for you and here's your sheet of prayers that you can say and uh, it's not like that. It's like, come join us on Sunday. We'll all be there. How about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Well, Saturday. the church gathers on the first day of the week. So the church says, when you get saved, join the family. We'll all be there. We're all going to help each other together. And so because it's prized by the Christian who is now in a new family, who has been redeemed out of darkness, 
It's then protected with every effort. This word eager means with effort, with labor. Racing towards something as if it matters to us. Eager to preserve and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now think about this. Back in the first century when this was written, they didn't have cubbies, awanas, they didn't have gun clubs, they didn't have curling clubs, they didn't have organized kids' sports, or the World Cup. They had none of that. And so when somebody got saved into a meaningful community, that was everything. That was everything, to be saved into this meaningful community that lives for something more than gathering wheat together and pounding flour together and fishing together. Those are all great things, but to live for something that is eternal together as a family is utterly precious, especially to a first century Christian. Now fast forward to our day. We have so devalued the preciousness of that affiliation because we have so many options. We have so many things calling us in every direction that the, the precious gathering and fellowship together of the saints just becomes one of the options. It just becomes one of many things that we could do. We don't prize it in the way that God intended us to prize it because I think we're, we're, we live lives of just such plenty. So often the gifts of wealth become distraction away from the calling of God to his people. It doesn't mean don't enjoy the gifts God gave you, but don't let them block you from what God has given you that means the most. And so I want you to see how this command to preserve unity helps us understand that spiritual discipline and discipleship is not a soul sport. It's not just get more holy, listen to more sermons, read more Bible. It's get together and bear with one another. That's your discipleship. That's your growth chart. People often think that they're mature because they can quote lots of verses. Now, I'm a Bible guy. I love the Bible. Quote to me as many verses as you want. But so often when they are unable to function in a church family, it's a total mark of immaturity. God says the mature... The, the ones who are growing in my grace and, and learning and, and expanding their spirituality, those are the ones who are bearing with one another the best. Isn't that cool? That your metric for Christian maturity is so rooted in other people. It's not rooted just in you and this personal. It's not like, it's not like a sprinter and you just got to get your time faster. It's like a relay if I'm going to use the same thing. But you, you're, we're running as a team. We are working toward this corporately as a family Toward God for holiness and as a witness to the world, which is ministry. So toward God and toward the world. Here's a word that you need to see. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain it. I've heard um, unity talked about before as something that we create. We need to create some unity. No. Unity has already been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He broke down the dividing wall between hostile peoples. He created one body out of many nations, tongues, tribes, and peoples. It has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. He prayed right before he was crucified in John 17, Father, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. We share in the fellowship of the Trinity in our salvation into the church. So incredibly, our unity is a function of remaining in the truth of the Father through the gospel of Christ, which created us in the first place. We need to talk about division if we're going to talk about unity. Very quickly. I have been accused of creating division by asserting biblical truth. Now, easy to get up on my, look at how, so easy to parade yourself around when you talk like that. I'm not trying to do that, but I, in, in asserting a doctrine or, or, or scriptural truth as I see it, probably in pride when I did, but I've been accused of creating division by, by insisting on or asserting some scriptural truth that might be contentious or controversial. And that's hard to hear. You're creating division. That's not what the Bible teaches us. It says maintain the unity that you've been given in Christ. 
So division is not caused by anybody who asserts the truth of Scripture and lives a holy life. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. So division is caused not by people who bring forth the truth. Now, some people do bring forth the truth in highly divisive ways by saying, you're sinful, you don't believe this, and I do. That's divisive. I'm not advocating for anything of that nature. But in the kindness and love of the Holy Spirit, eager to maintain unity, so if somebody brings up truth in order to say, we're going to create a club of people who understand this and people who don't, that's not maintaining unity. But if unity is already given, then division is created by some who depart from the truth and who depart from holy living. That creates division. It's people who depart from the unity that is blood purchased by Jesus Christ. You've probably heard the word doctrine divides. No, it doesn't. The family of God has been made one together. We, in eagerness, need to seek to preserve and protect and maintain that unity. Doesn't mean we don't disagree. There are churches in this town that, that I would say we are totally united with in the gospel of Christ. And we differ dramatically on how some of those things get applied. That's not division. It's okay for you to, there to be other churches that gather and worship. That's okay. We're still after the same gospel. But there are churches who have departed from the doctrine of the gospel, who have departed from right living, who have departed from the lordship of Christ. We do not have unity with some bodies of believers or people or whatever it is, assemblies. We just do not have unity because they've departed from these things. Again, not saying we're better, they're worse. I'm saying division is created, unity is maintained. We do not create unity with people by shoving aside Massive differences in Scripture. In other words, our pursuit, our pursuit in the church is rather than avoiding conflict or slinking away when the application is difficult, we press on to patch up things where they have broken because we mess up all the time, right? We put little cracks in that unity. We do. I contribute to that often, I am sure, because I talk the most in this church. But I pray that if somebody, if I am erring or if I'm creating division in some way, that someone would come to me and say, Tim, what you're saying is divisive. Tim, what you're saying is breaking apart the unity of the body. Then I pray that I would go back to the scriptures and repent and say, we need to patch this up. I pray that you would be eager to maintain that unity in your relationship with me and one another to say, let's go back. Let's fix it. Let's patch it up because Christ has given it to us. Because if those in the church who have the Holy Spirit cannot function like this, what are we saying to the world about humanity? If we can't do it with God inside of us, the world has no hope. We need to show a community that dwells and lives together in peace because this is how God created us to be. Number, so number three, a disciple desires and maintains unity in the church. Number four, a disciple stays centered on theology. And this is just right plainly in our text. Why? Why do we do all this? Why does it matter so much to God that we are one, that we are united, that we maintain that unity? Why? Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, who is over all and through all and in all. It's because God is not divided. So if we are going to be a witness of who God is, and boy, isn't it a sad state today. When people come to Christianity, they say, well, what flavor? Which God is right? Is it the charismatic God? Is it the conservative God? Is it the social justice God? Is it the huddle until you get to heaven God? Which God is it when you present me Christianity? So it's a sad witness to the world when we are not maintaining unity. But God is one. God is not divided. His baptism is one. There is one entry into the church, and it's through the baptism of Christ, into his death and resurrection. He is over all and in all and, and through all. And remember what I said, that there are four categories, origin, meaning, morality, uh, destiny. This is the destiny of all humanity, that there is one God to which all things return. 
That doesn't mean all people are saved. But all things are through him and to him, which means everything is going toward God. God is undivided. He is unbroken. He is um, of one mind. He has never changed his plan. And he is overall, which means that all things are subject to his will and his authority. God is our destiny. Which means that every activity and challenge and purpose in the church must have its full end as the glory and ultimacy of God. That's my point. A disciple is centered on theology. If we lose that God's glory is the highest order of the church, then we start to make compromise when we hit challenges. We start to make compromises. Oh, that'll be difficult. Oh, we'll lose that person. Oh, that'll make them feel sad or singled out. Oh, that'll make... When we start trying to psychoanalyze people in the church and say, well, let's deal with it in a little bit different way than what the scriptures say. We say we're a Bible-believing church. The only way to test that is when conflict shows up. That's the only way to test whether or not a church really believes the Bible. When conflict or some kind of... um, I have no other word. Conflict. Conflict tests your conviction of the scriptures. Every activity, challenge, and purpose of the church is for the end of God's glory. The ultimacy of God. It's not so that we can sweep the streets in Smith's Falls and polish the brass on a sinking ship or anything like that. It's for God's ultimate glory. It's for the transforming power of the gospel through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.28, I love this. Of, Of Christ, it says, when he rules, when all things are subjected to Jesus... What's Jesus going to do? Then the Son himself will subject all things to God, so that God may be all in all. So every family who derives its names from from God, the Father, the Creator, one day he will have what is his. His Lordship will reign. Habakkuk 2.14, my favorite verse. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the seas. And so the church insists together on the centrality of God as our guiding purpose and our end, that we would not chase agendas or hobbies in the name of God, that we wouldn't use religion as something as a, as a vehicle for our interests, that we would be part of the vehicle for God's glory. So I close with this. What, what is a disciple? Who are we? Well, you have that that list of those four, and I can share those with you after if you like again. But what are disciples? Number one, we are self-aware of our calling of God in the gospel of Christ. There are no accidental Christians. Nobody's a Christian without knowing it. We're self-aware of the gospel in our lives. A disciple, we, are active and action-oriented in how we apply the gospel. We seek out the relational implications of the gospel. Again, how we apply the gospel in this context is particular to our relationships. What is a disciple? We are singular in our declaration as God, of God as the ultimate and the sovereign and as he as the end of all things in history. Lastly, we, what are disciples? We are committed to the body of Christ. We are committed to the family of God in a practical, regular, and sacrificial way. And we're going to get into that a lot more in the next three weeks. But um, this is kind of an introduction to discipleship. 101. What is a disciple? And uh, so I I encourage you to read through these things and pray um, your way through what you've heard this morning and reflect on this and meditate and um, go through these scriptures with um, whoever is in your household or on your own. Um, But don't forget that we walk these things through together.